This is a podcast from the October 27, 2008 meeting of the Knight Commission on Intercollegiate Athletics. The podcast features discussions relating to commercialism and economic health in intercollegiate athletics. These sessions are the first in a year-long series of planned discussions on the economics and finance of college sports that will culminate in a major report on the realities facing universities and athletic programs in late 2009. This was the third session of the conference relating to college sports finances, an update on efforts to improve accuracy of financial data reported by Division I athletic programs and a report on the financial health of Division I athletics programs. The podcast begins with an introduction from Knight Commission on Intercollegiate Athletics co-chairman William Britt Kerwin, Chancellor of the University System of Maryland. Um, it's it's uh, interesting to note that when the Knight Commission was reconvened in uh, November of 2003, um, one, of the, one of the reasons for reconvening uh, the Knight Commission uh, was to get the commission to uh, look at the issue of college sports financing, to collect, uh, the, study the issue of how to collect uh, more data, and uh, to be able to reflect that data in a way that uh, represents the true costs of uh, inter- intercollegiate athletics. Uh, independently, uh, the NCAA uh, took up this uh, issue about five years ago and uh, has been doing a lot of work, and uh, which has culminated in a, a new uh, a data collection and report that has certainly gone a long way to uh, providing comparable financial data and uh, some clarity on college, uh, college athletic costs. Um, we have a, a panel here to uh, discuss uh, the results of the NCAA efforts and, um, and to, in a way, uh, respond to this initial charge for the reconvened Knight Commission. And uh, we're anxious to hear from them and to get their thoughts on uh, how far this effort is gone, uh, how valuable is it, uh, and uh, any observations they might have to make on how it might be uh, might be improved. Um, we have uh, uh, four experts to uh, speak with us, and uh, we're going to the, the lead off will be uh, Jim Ish, who is the senior vice president and chief financial officer of the NCAA, who has been at the forefront of this whole uh, effort to uh, collect more uh, reliable financial data. He's been the driving force behind the new dashboard indicators and has really spearheaded the collaboration between NCAA and the uh, Nakubo officers who've been uh, involved in this uh, uh, financial study. Uh, Then we'll hear from Dan Folks, who is a leading authority on um, intercollegiate athletics finance. Uh, he's been a consultant for to the NCAA for 15 years, has authored a number of report, reports on revenues and expenses in Division I athletics program. He's um, a professor at Transylvania University and uh, is there, that university's fa- faculty athletic representative. Uh, then we'll hear from Andrew Zimbalist, who's a noted uh, sports economist and the Robert A. Woods Professor of Economics at 
at Smith College. He's authored uh, n- numerous books uh, and articles on this general topic, and including in, in, in 1999, Unpaid professionalism, Professionals, Commercialism and Conflict in Big-Time College Sports. And, um, and then he also um, authored a, a book, Equal Play, Title IX, and Social Change. And then finally, we're going to hear from a, a director of um, a, a Division I-A athletics program. We're very pleased to have Ron Wellman, uh, who is the uh, athletics director at Wake Forest University, uh, and a very distinguished one at that. Last year, he uh, was selected by Street and Smith's Sports Business Journal as the athletic director of the year. And um, he is uh, certainly the dean of the ACC athletics director, uh, directors, having been in his position now, I think, 16 years. Isn't that uh, right, Ron? So we want to thank all of you um, for g- uh, giving us your time and expertise today. Uh, this is being recorded, so uh, please speak into the microphone when you make your comments. And uh, we're going to start with uh, Jim Ish. Thank you very much. It's uh, certainly my pleasure to be here with you today and for uh, this afternoon's presentation, Dan and I will be splitting the uh, slideshow here. As uh, Gerald had mentioned, I think during the break, we were talking about how many times we've given this presentation, and I don't know, I've lost track after 20 or so, so hopefully uh, uh, it will uh, go well. Let me start off by just talking about the reason for uh, our work here in the financial uh, research and and dashboard projects. Uh, Miles Brand, approximately uh, four years ago, five years ago, appointed a presidential task force. It was 50 members uh, comprised of university presidents and thought leaders in uh, in higher education. he gave them a charge to look at the future of intercollegiate athletics and come back with a series of points of emphasis. And one of those points was obviously fiscal responsibility. Now the group concluded after seeing the research that had been produced that intercollegiate athletics was not in financial crisis. However, the current trends of athletic expenditures and revenues increasing at approximately three to four times that of the university created certainly stress on the university's ability to maintain uh, focus on its mission. When the task force began looking for ways to address the, uh, the topic of fiscal responsibility, One of the things that they quickly learned was that this wasn't academic reform. There wasn't an easy way to legislate or through the governance process make rules that could suddenly change the financial structure of intercollegiate athletics. Obviously, the NCA had been sued back in the early 2000 for antitrust violations, and so when The task force looked at the possibility of legislative solutions. There were essentially none that were available to them at that point. And they concluded that it was only through presidential leadership and accountability that change could actually occur and that reform 
uh, could happen. And more importantly, the only way to accomplish that is through a strategy of education and the development of a series of assessment tools that could provide information to campus decision makers as they were considering the options for funding their universities. Thus, the, uh, the uh, genesis of the dashboard indicators, and I want to make clear here, and I'm going to show you a, a uh, demonstration a little later, but the dashboard project was specifically des designed for institutional, an institutional view, as opposed to what Dan is going to present later, which is much more at an aggregate level, at a summary level uh, perspective. So very different kinds of, of tools. So let's talk just a little bit about what the dashboard indicators are. What we've done is use primarily aggregate data. We recognized early on that the further you drill down in the various levels of accounting detail, the more differences they are. And this is not to be unexpected. I mean, as you all work in your business and your firms, you know that at an aggregate, at a total level, things look pretty good. But if you want to know what the um, telephone costs are for football recruiting, it's a very, very different sort of problem as far as comparability. So everything that we've done has tried to stay at an aggregate level. We developed a series of 26 indicators, and we did this with the assistant of university presidents, with uh, NACUBO, the association, as well as chief financial officers of universities, ADs, and athletic business officers. So they were a part of, uh, of the effort to create these tools. Twenty-six of them, and I just want to point out a couple of here. The first one has to do with generated revenues over total athletic revenues. And I know Todd Petter spent some time with you last year talking about the difference between generated revenues, which are examples up here on the screen, ticket sales, radio uh, contributions, uh, as opposed to allocated revenues. And the reason we did this is because as we've looked at the past and tried to compare privates versus public, what you find at private institutions is that they typically support athletics if they do directly from their institution as opposed to publics that have much less direct support and more student fees. So by combining them under the allocated revenues definition, I think it adds additional clarity. So the first one here that you see is generated over total athletic revenues. What percent are you actually uh, producing as an athletic department? Another one that was very important to the presidents was the salaries and benefits as a total of the athletic expenditures, total athletic expenditures. And then one that we spent a great deal of time talking about, what percent of the institutional budget is attributed to athletics? And this is something that, that early on when we just sat around the table and asked people, what's your guess? Much larger number than what it truly is. And then this fourth one I think is very important and goes to the point that I made at the beginning this idea of what's the rate of change as far as revenues and expenditures the athletic department versus the change at the university level. So let me 
talk just briefly about the the next steps here and where we're going, and then I'm going to do a quick demonstration of the dashboards. The presidents of our Division I institution received access to the dashboards last May. What we're going to do is we're going to allow each institution to go back in and make corrections to data that has previously been submitted over the last four years in this next reporting cycle. You say, why would you do that? Well, one of the things that we've recognized is this is the first time the NCA has actually taken data that's been reported by the institution and provided it back to the institution where they can see in a trend line. And we know we've got some inconsistency. So we're going to allow institutions to go back and make those adjustments to ensure comparability. Uh, we've, uh, we've appointed a fiscal responsibility oversight group. Again, that's a group of presidents, CFOs, ADs, and athletic business officers to help us further enhance the dashboard product. We're going to be meeting over the next several years because we know this is an evolutionary product, that this is the first year, and our hope is to make it better each subsequent year. We have uh, we've already received a numerous uh, comments from our first uh, dashboard release and have made those changes to our second year instructions. Let me, uh, let me just quickly go through the dashboards. I'm going to, excuse me, first let me go here to the presidential view. I've skipped the welcome, which is a slide that talks about uh, um, the purpose of the dashboards. Each institution will, when they initially open up their dashboards will be placed in the conference that you see here at the top. So you can look at Big 12, but if you want to look at American East, okay, you'll note how the graph changes. They have the opportunity to select three peer groups. We wanted to do this because we've heard the desire by our presidents to have athletic peers, academic peers. How do I compare against groups that we believe are important? You have the opportunity to look at various subdivisions, public versus private, and then budget size. What you see here are the, are the seven indicators that we think are important for the presidents to view. And, and this is after asking a series of presidents. So you can, when they open up, you can just pop on these. You'll note how they change on the, the graphics. All right? So what you see in this view is the annual view, where you have the 25th percentile, the 50th percentile, and the 75th percentile of these particular groups, with the institution being the black line here. Okay? So one of the points that has been made to us is there are a number of accounting differences among our institutions. So it's difficult to compare one institution with another institution. For instance, some institutions might have their concessions where they handle them themselves. So they'd have the revenues from all the concession, they'd have the expenses. Where others contract that out and that's a net number. So if you look at, if you look at the totals, there may be slight differences. And you may say that that's troublesome for you. Well, if you look at the trend analysis here, what's important is to begin to look at the trend of your institution 
versus the trend of the peer groups. And what this, has to, what this does is smooth out those differences because you're comparing your institution to itself over a period of time versus other institutions to themselves. Okay? So another view that we have just quickly is what we call variance. This is a slide that shows you all the indicators where this particular institution is either above the 75th percentile or below the 25th, and these arrows indicate that. So for Big 12 Conference, this institution is above the 75th, and the Big 10, they're below the 25th. So for a president wants a quick view, where are my outliers? Here's the, the look that you, uh, you go to. My view is an opportunity for each institution to develop their own list that they want to see. So there are certainly 26. There are plenty to look at. So maybe you only want to look at the top 10. You can develop your own list. Um, and so I'm not going to uh, take any additional time because I know we're, we're short here. But I wanted to give you at least um, a feel for what the tool is and the capabilities of the tool. And I'm going to turn this over to, uh, to Dan unless there are questions here that you'd like to, to ask. This is available to every Division I president. And then it's up to the president to decide how he or she wants to distribute that, the dashboard, to members of, the, of uh, their institution. Yes, we've um, uh, approximately 72% of all Division I institutions have been in multiple times, have been in or looked at this multiple times. So we still have about 28% uh, that have not been into the tool. Jim, just a, just a note. Jim had an opportunity to present this dashboard to the PAC-10 CEOs, and it was well, well received. I think all of us really appreciate it, and many of us have been using it. Well, and I, I do want to point out that Welch Suggs here is a user of the dashboard, so if you have any questions, please ask uh, Welch. <laughs> all right. Dan? Uh, let me also say thanks to uh, commission members, not only for <coughs> this opportunity to be here, but especially for the work that you're doing and the attention that we're getting. This, this is important. and. As I've said to a couple of people already today, there's, there's nothing like, there's, there's no segment of society, there's no segment of our economy that is, that is like intercollegiate athletics. It's, it's unique, uh, and it's very important in lots of ways. Uh, I'm at Transylvania University in, in Lexington, Kentucky, which is a Division Three school. I was uh, at the University of Kentucky for 19 years before I moved up to Division III. Um, and then... Uh, <laughs> Then at one time, I did work for a living, and I, I worked in Atlanta for Ernst & Young and did tax and accounting work for Atlanta Falcons, Atlanta Braves, and Atlanta Stadium Authority. So I've been around organized athletics for quite some time and, and, uh, and love it. And when I started this 15 years ago with the NCAA, nobody cared. And I was screaming for some attention, and uh, it, it just wasn't there. So I particularly appreciate the, the attention that we're, we're now getting. And this 15-year period has just seen incredible growth 
uh, in college athletics, uh, and I think mostly for the good. Uh, but things things have changed. Um, the goals of uh, of the new. Uh, the goals of the new uh, financial data collection process were, were several. Uh, first, we wanted to attempt to consolidate uh, the financial data collection. Uh, we were getting plenty of pushback from primarily from ADs uh, and others, CFOs and CEOs, uh, about being constantly, seemingly once a month, somebody's asking for data. Uh, so we have attempted to, uh, to consolidate uh, the data and making it as easy as, as possible for the people who are supplying the data. We also wanted to coordinate uh, the third-party review with financial reporting, and all the data that we now receive are subject to third-party review, um, not necessarily audit uh, from, from the institution's uh, accounting firm, but some third-party has to review. We did. We would prefer that the numbers be audited by the outside firm, and that's the reason we pushed our collection date or due date back to uh, January uh, in an effort to, uh, to align more closely with, with the institution's uh, audit period. We're looking for more con consistency and transparency with the data, and I think we've come a long way in, in getting that, and that has led us to more relevant, more accurate information. And we also now are, are requiring involvement, at least signature, uh, hopefully involvement, uh, not only from the athletic business officers and ADs, but CFO and CEOs. Uh, so we have more people taking responsibility now. Um, the result from all of this, results from all of this, have been uh, improved reporting. Um, I think perhaps the most significant thing we did from just a, a reporting standpoint is that we have separated, allocated from generated revenues. I think this is extremely significant and, uh, uh, and it is giving us much better, more relevant information. Uh, we also, when I, f when I first took this up 15 years ago, the first thing I did was separate direct institutional support. I said if the institution is, is just transferring funds from the general fund to athletics, you know, that's just taken from one pocket and put it in the other. So the first thing we did was eliminate that. But we also knew that along the way, we've known for years, there was some indirect support as well. You know, is the institution paying the utility bill for athletics, maintenance on the facilities, that sort of thing. Uh, and so we have, and I think, and this was with the help of Nakubo, and there were other people on that task force, Carol, besides Nakubo. We had ADs there. Uh, I remember Kevin Weberg was there, Weberg. Um, and that was extremely beneficial. So I think we've gotten a good handle on the indirect support now. Uh, my pet peeve was the other expense and other revenue category was just getting out of hand. If you've got other revenues that are reporting at like 25, 30 percent, then you don't really have much information. So we're trying to uh, put a limit on, on uh, the magnitude of that number. <coughs> Um, so I'm, I'm feeling just incredibly good about the, the improvements we've made um, in the last three to five years. We've added some new expense lines, which give us more information, and, and uh, here's, here's a list of those. Um, we've added coaches' compensation paid from third parties. We essentially, with the compensation data that we're collecting now, we're saying any compensation, any part of the compensation package that is guaranteed by the institution 
has to be included in that expense item, whether it's paid by a third party or the institution itself. Um, severance pay. Uh, we have separated support staff uh, salaries and administrative salaries now from coaches' compensation. That's relatively new. Um, direct facilities, maintenance, and rental. That includes debt service, by the way, um, on the facilities. Uh, and there's the indirect facilities maintenance number. Spirit groups, others. So we've added more expense lines, um, which, will, uh, which have given us more information. That's in addition to separating the generated from allocated. Now, I have run some uh, aggregate dashboard indicators uh, just for your information. Um, athletics, has a, athletics expenditures as a percentage of total institutional budget. Uh, this has remained fairly flat uh, for a lot of years, uh, between 4 and 5%. And as Jim indicated, um, our, our chief interest here, of course, is, is getting a handle on expenses, but we're, we're really concerned about the growth rate. The growth rate of athletics expenditures uh, as compared to uh, the overall institutional uh, growth rate. Generated revenues there, you can see a huge difference between the FBS and the FCS and the no football schools. Uh, the FBS schools are generating about 76 percent uh, in 2006. That's down a little bit. It was 80 percent in 2005. Um, whereas then you go to the FCS schools and, and they're generating. And, and yes. Just a clarification. When you say generated revenues as a percent of total revenues, the only other revenue would be the allocated? Yes. Okay, so it's, all yes. right, thank you. Yeah, those, four, those four numbers, that's correct. Um, and that gives you a, a good handle on, um, one, the difference between FBS and FCS and no football schools, uh, and the, their ability to, uh, to basically be self-supporting. And that next uh, dashboard indicator um, gives us an indication of generated revenues uh, being able to support total athletic budget. Uh, reliance on football revenues, 40 percent um, in the FBS. Essentially, in the FBS, if you're not selling tickets, you have no, no hope of having excess revenues over expenses. Uh, we've got 19 schools, which we'll see in a minute, 19 schools that reported excess net revenues uh, in 2006. And uh, you could probably... You could probably name most of those, if not all of them. They're selling 80 or 100,000 football tickets seven weekends a, a year. And they're also in conferences that are sending uh, half a dozen teams to men's postseason basketball. They're in conferences that are sending more than one team to, to bowl games. Uh, bowl games are not a big money maker unless you're in the BCS Bowl. Uh, so, and we'll see in a minute the, the revenue sources. Other dashboard indicators, grants in aid as a percentage of, um, of total operating expenses and total compensation as a percentage of total operating expenses. Now, the lesson here is that if you combine those two numbers, 17% for grants in aid, 33% for total compensation, you've got 50% of the FBS budget. And that's been pretty steady for a lot of years. Um, in FCS, 29% uh, and 33%. That makes up 62% of the total budget just from two line items. And the same thing holds true in, in Division I without football. 
Um, and I think another, another lesson here, another uh, takeaway, is uh, the, the balance between coaches' salaries and, and other salaries. Coaches' compensation as a percentage of total budget is 17%, and non-coaches 16% in the FBS. Uh, so, you know, we talk a lot about runaway coaches' salaries. Uh, you know, that's just half the picture on the compensation side. Here's some more numbers from um, 2006. Um, total revenues, in, uh, I, and this is, these are uh, median numbers. Uh, in the FBS, 35 million, and again, you look at the, the leap from FCS to FBS. Um, total revenues in the FCS, uh, a little over 9 million. And Division I without football, about the same. Uh, these increases at next line, that's the increase from 2004, so that's a two-year increase. Um, generated revenues are shown also, and again, the, the marked difference between the FBS and uh, the other two subdivisions. Total expenses. Um, here's, here's the concern um, with this slide right here. The increase in total expenses from 2004 uh, pretty much across the board, 23, 23, 24%, whereas you jump back up two lines and you see the increase in generated revenues, generated revenues um, from 2004, 16, 13, and 20. Uh, so that's, that's where I think our focus has to be, uh, that expenses are increasing at a, at a faster rate than, than are our revenues. Um, total net revenues... Uh, and this is a median number for all 119 schools in the FBS. Uh, the median is just under $200,000. So when we talk about this next slide, when we look at 19 FBS schools, that's 17% of the total, uh, turning a profit. Well, the average profit is $4.3 million for those 19 schools. Um, but I assure you there's, there's a disparity between the bottom 10% and the top 10% of those 19 schools. Uh, that average um, profit is significant change from 2004 at 65% up and down toward the bottom. Um, the average loss for the schools that are losing money uh, is increasing as well. So, you know, bottom line is that the gap between the financial haves and the financial have-nots just continues to grow. The schools that are making money are making more money. The schools that are losing money are losing more money. Um, next slide. Uh, revenue categories. I've listed the top three um, for each of these subdivisions. Under revenue, you've got alumni contributions at 24%, and there's your ticket sales number at 23%. So you combine those two, and you've got 47% of total revenue production. Uh, and that's based on total revenues. That's, that's not generated revenues. Uh, then NCAA and conference distributions, which, of course, would include uh, men's basketball postseason, as well as some bowl money from the BCSs. Uh, that's another 14%. So add those three together, and you've got 61% of the total revenue production. Student fees, by the way, you see student fees as fairly significant with FCS and the non-football schools. Um, 
with uh, FBS, student fees account for about only 7% of uh, total revenues. Uh, the absolute dollar amount of student fees in the FCS is increasing, but that percentage of total has stayed pretty flat over several years. It's just not a, not a big number. Same thing happens on the expense side. You've got three items that uh, on FBS, those, those three items make up 62% of the total budget. Um, in the FCS, you've got three items that represent 65% of the total budget. And the non-football schools, 68% of the total budget. So <clears throat> bottom line there is nothing else matters very much anyway. Um, I wanted to back up. Let me just point out something uh, real quickly with that. Um, the uh, total revenues, um, FBS total revenues, uh, the difference between the top 10% and the bottom 10%, um, one more, I think, Jim. Uh, the, the bottom 10% of the FBS, the range for those schools of total revenues is between 2.9 and 5.1 million, whereas the top range, total revenues, between 67.8 and 237 million dollars. So the, the difference is huge. And the same thing is true on the expense side. Uh, the bottom 10% total budget on expense side is between Seven and sixteen percent. I mean, million dollars. Seven and sixteen million dollars. Uh, the top ten percent are spending between sixty-five million and Ohio State. One hundred and one. One hundred and one. Which sounds like a lot of money, and it's more than I'm making a whole month. But if if you um, if you lay that athletic budget at Ohio State next to the total institutional budget, you know, you're still sitting around four or five percent. Uh, my front burner issues. Uh, here's, here's what I'm excited about. Uh, some continuing look at student fees, and there's been a lot of talk about student fees. Um, and yeah, student fees are increasing, but the percentage of um, student fees as a percent of total revenues for, for most schools is staying pretty flat. I, I think the issues with student fees are anecdotal. It, clearly, we have some schools um, that are financing their programs with increasing student fees. And that, I think, is an institutional issue. I think it's a political issue within the state. Uh, I think some schools in Florida have had some, some difficulties with this. Uh, but I, I don't see that as an aggregate issue. Uh, first one on this list, accounting for grants and aid. I've been confused for 15 years now how if, if grants and aid really represent a true expense uh, and how we should deal with it. Uh, we have opted over the years to try to stay consistent with it and, and be sure that everybody's treating them the same way. Um, but that's, it's, uh, it's a bit of a mystery to me, and, and Andy might can help with that a little bit. It might be more of an economics issue than an accounting issue. Uh, improved reporting of ancillary revenues. I'm talking about parking, um, royalties. Uh, and that was mentioned a bit this morning with our student-athletes. Um, we are asking for that information. We, we just, the schools need to do a better job of getting it to us. If, if you report the parking that you're generating, then, then we report it. It's included in our numbers. Uh, and we're, we're expanding our definitions more and more every year with our survey instruments uh, in hopes of getting uh, more complete information. Uh, 
Inclusion of additional facilities data, people have been asking for years for some capital expenses, uh, that sort of thing. Well, we've been collecting that now for three or four years, and that will be included as an addendum to, to the next report. Uh, we're collecting data on aggregate data on, uh, for the institution on total book value of athletics facilities as, and compared that with institutional. Uh, what facilities have you added during the past fiscal year? What facilities have you had? You, have you taken away uh, during the past year? So we're, we're doing our best to get a grip on, uh, on capital expenditures. Jim mentioned soliciting more feedback on the dashboards uh, and also uh, continuing our refinement of definitions. Like I said, uh, we're, the, the, the paper gets thicker. Well, it's online now, but the, the form gets thicker and thicker every year just because we're, we're trying to be more and more clear with our definitions for purposes of getting more consistency. And we really could use your help with your Department of Education. Uh, we, we could use a lot more cooperation from them in terms of reporting deadlines and quality of their reportings. Uh, their deadline is early in the fall. Ours is in January. Uh, we really would like to work more closely with them uh, and have reached out to try to do that. Um, and EADA reports probably are doing what they were intended to do. I think the problem with EADA reports is people are trying to do with them what they were not intended to do. Uh, the sole purpose of EADA is to monitor uh, Title IX gender equity uh, expenditures, and we're coming close with that. Um, Daniel, what, just one point of clarification. Uh, you, you mentioned, and the data are pretty clear, that the expenditures on athletic programs are going up at a much higher rate than at the rest of the institution. You had a 26 percent, was it over two years? Okay, that wasn't compared with the institution. That's uh, expenses increase above athletics revenue. Athletics expenses are increasing at a more rapid rate than uh, generated revenues. You weren't comparing that to non-athletic no. expenditures? Okay. No, just right. athletics. Thank you. Um, Andrew. I'll try to be brief so we have some time for, for discussion. Uh, I look at the figures, the same figures that Dan just shared with you, and conclude that there is a financial crisis in intercollegiate uh, athletics. When you have 100 out of 119 Division 1A schools uh, all reporting a, a generated loss, and that that loss averages $8.9 million, or doesn't average, it's the median, excuse me. Uh, I view that as a crisis, uh, particularly given the fact that over the previous three years, costs grew at 7% more than revenue, and that's been a trend for a long time. It would be interesting to see figures that were three years updated. We are three years hence from the figures that, that were being shown today. Uh, but more, more significantly, perhaps, the, the grim data that Dan shared with you, I think, in reality, is even still bleaker. And the reason is this, I, and I applaud all of the efforts that Jim and Dan and others at the NCAA are making. I think they are making positive steps, but they have an awfully long way to go. And one of the areas where they have a long way to go is with capital costs. Uh, they are making efforts there. Uh, they've even produced a couple of excellent studies, uh, one by the Orzag brothers, who estimated that uh, properly accounted 
the average Division I-A school experiences $24 million a year in capital costs. Uh, those are being vastly underrepresented uh, when they're represented at all in the numbers that, that you just saw. Uh, another area, a larger area where I have some questions is counting donations as generated revenues. Uh, to be sure, when somebody is motivated to donate to an athletics department because they love the department or because they have good teams, uh, that you could say that those revenues are in part induced by or generated by the performance of, of, excuse me, of that department. But my concern is that those funds that are going to athletics are going to athletics at the expense of going to the general fund. The share of giving to universities uh, back in 1998 that was accounted for by athletics was just over 14 percent. In 2005, that share was up around 24 percent. Uh, so that uh, there, there is a real possibility here, and I think that there, if you look at it on a school-by-school -school basis, there's some evidence to support this. There's some evidence that the, the donations, the gifts to athletics, are cannibalizing the gifts to the general fund. And if we're, what we're really interested in here, the bottom line is we want to know to what extent the athletics departments uh, support themselves or to what extent they're supported and subsidized by the university, what is the true cost to the university of sustaining their athletics programs, uh, then we'd be very interested in, in the extent to which there might be cannibalization of, of the donations. Now, let me take a step back and ask the question, uh, what, what can be done, how can we think about reform of the system in a way that we can deal with, with the financial crisis? And I think, indeed, the first step that we have to take is, is the step that, that Jim and, and Dan are, are taking. Um, and that is that if we want to know how sick the patient is, we have to have a thermometer that works, or we have to have um, a, a, a magnetic imaging uh, machine that works. We, we can't have broken instruments. We have to know what it is that we're trying to fix, what the magnitude of the problem is. And so, yes, indeed, we have to collect accurate, hard, and as complete data as we possibly can. Now, having said that, I think there are some real serious issues that lie ahead and challenges that lie ahead for the NCAA. One of them is, is that the, the, the survey that I saw, I haven't seen the updated survey, but from year one, has all sorts of ambiguities in it, things that are very, very unclear about what's being asked for. Uh, so we have to clear up the language, and then we have to do a lot of education uh, at the level of the athletic CFOs and also at the level of, of uh, institution CEOs to understand what it is that they're being asked for and what it is that the data actually represents. Uh, once we've cleared up the language and we've educated everybody, then we have to deal with what, what do we really have with this third-party review system. Uh, Dan said a moment ago that they're not all done by outside accounting firms, they're not all formal audits, uh, even if they were, I think there'd be an issue, but they're not. Um, we need to know who's, who's doing the review, on what basis are they doing the review, and are there penalties for reporting false information? I think it's a very serious issue. We had just recently, this is just one example, but we had recently the state of New Jersey did an audit on the Rutgers athletics program. Uh, they found all sorts of really interesting things. One of the things they found is that Nelligan Marketing Agency, which has, by the way, contracts with 25 uh, uh, Division I schools, 
Nelligan Marketing Agency made some side deals that uh, Athletics apparently knew about, but the Treasurer's Office at Rutgers didn't know about. They were not informed. And one of the side deals was they were going to give Greg Schiano an extra $250,000 in salary. His salary, his compensation package is over $2 million. They're going to give him an extra $250,000 for so-called consulting with Nelligan. Then they, they added another thing to his contract in 2007 that said that the former penalty of $500,000 that Shiano would have to pay if he left Rutgers was being waived. And then they added another thing to his contract extension that said he can have unlimited use of a private jet for recruiting and scouting purposes. Uh, whether or not any of those figures are, are justified, the fact that the treasurer's office didn't even know about them and they were not part of the athletics department uh, report to the treasurer's office, I question whether they were part, were part of the report that, that they made to the NCAA, uh, is, is a very significant issue. The auditor's report also told us that when Rutgers went in uh, 2006 to the Texas Bowl, uh, giving a nod to Sarah Palin, they violated their own university rules and had people on their staff take their families and take their children and take other guests and have fully expense-paid trips uh, to the bowl game. In, in 2005, when Rutgers went to the Insight Bowl, the athletics department reported to the university that they had expenses from the Insight Bowl of $1.3 million, and they had revenues from the bowl of $1.25 million. So they even reported a slight deficit from going to the bowl. But it turns out, according to, according to the state audit, that they did not include in their expenses the fact that they had to give the coaches an additional $239,000 in bonuses because they were able to bring the team to the bowl game. And they also paid $214,000 to the band and the cheerleaders, not paid to them, but paid for them to to attend the bowl game. Now, this last point is significant for a, a, a very important and, and generalized reason, and that reason is this, that, as I'm sure you're aware, an athletics department operating within a university system has a myriad of what we call related party transactions that they engage in. In the case of a, of a band, the band's expenses can be put in the music department. In the case of cheerleaders, it could be put in the dance department. In the case of cleaning uniforms, it could be put in another department. In the case of maintenance of facilities, it could be put in another department. So we have to get down a very detailed system about how we're going to do accounting for all of the related party tra transactions that go on. This is another reason why the, the audit system, the education behind the financial reporting and then the audit system uh, is going to be crucial if we're going to get real numbers out of the system. So anyway, that's the first step. The first step, if we're serious about reform and dealing with the crisis, is we've got to get, we've got to get real numbers. The second step, I think, is this. I'm going to try to be very brief here. It's a complicated issue. But in my view, the ongoing and overriding problem with finances and, and college athletic programs is that there are no shareholders to the programs. These are, in essence, bureaucracies. Uh, they don't have to report profits every quarter to make their shareholders happy to make the price of their stock go up. They are in a somewhat competitive environment in terms of spending. They have to have the latest facilities. They have to have the latest uh, football stadium and arenas with luxury boxes, the training facilities, uh, wonderful report in the Chronicle of Education a couple of months ago about now Michigan has spent $12 million on a center for, uh, for uh, academic academic training for athletes and they have ongoing yearly expenses of one or two million dollars. They need the latest in all of that. So on the expense side, there's competitive pressures to make them spend more and more. 
there's really no, other than getting an occasional note perhaps from, from the President's office or the Treasurer's office, they don't face market pressures, real market pressures to, to deal with costs. And indeed, I would argue that um, it's in the interests of most, most athletic directors um, and other personnel within the athletics department not to control costs. So I think that waste has come to be endemic in these systems. We don't have a system where the market is providing discipline. And in the absence of market discipline, we need administrative discipline. And the best way to get administrative discipline is through hard and fast rules. It was mentioned this morning correctly, I think, by Wally. I'm not sure uh, Wally went, ran through. I'm not sure if, uh, if somebody else may have brought it up as well, that the NCAA has tried in the past to impose rules of cost control. One of them was with the, uh, the fourth basketball coach a few years ago, and the NCAA was found to be in violation of the, uh, the, the antitrust statutes in this country. I think that the NCAA needs to go to Congress and ask for an antitrust exemption, a limited antitrust exemption, to control certain expenditures. One of those expenditures is head coaches' salaries. Uh, to me, it's obscene that we have head coaches that are getting paid three, four, and five million dollars a year plus abundant perquisites uh, when the college president is being paid four hundred or five hundred or six hundred thousand dollars a year. Not only is it the wrong signal morally, but in my view, and I'd be happy to talk about this at greater length, in my view, it's entirely unjustified economically. And you could save with a system like that, and justice is just one cost control, but there are many others that could be put in place. You could save millions of dollars uh, at, at Division I schools. So I think that uh, in the absence of market discipline, if we're talking about really bringing finances under control, we have to have administrative discipline uh, in college athletics. And that means taking some, the NCA taking some affirmative action towards the Congress and getting certain certain exemptions so that they can impose the necessary controls. Uh, having said all that, I think that there's a small bit of good news, and that is that this crisis that I'm talking about, of course, predates, since we're talking about uh, the, the 05, 06 uh, academic year, the data is from that year anyway, uh, it, it predates the financial and macroeconomic meltdown that we have in the United States and in the world today. I think that the meltdown that we're experiencing provides a wonderful opportunity for the Knight Commission and for all of those of us who are interested in reforming the finances of college athletics, a wonderful opportunity to get the ear of college presidents, to get the ear of boards of governors, and get them finally to do something that they've been reluctant to do uh, for, for many decades now. Thank you. Ron? Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and <clears throat> thank you for this opportunity to be here with you this afternoon. I will tell you that I'm glad I'm not the athletic director at Rutgers uh, speaking right now after, after that. Um, I've been asked to talk about the response of the athletic commu community to uh, the dashboard indicators. Uh, and generally, I would say the response has been very, very positive. Uh, we're enthused about what the product is and, and how we might be able to use it. As with any new product, I think there is some confusion, uh, some misunderstanding as to what the purpose of the product is. Uh, I relate it very similarly to the APR. I think you all remember the APR was instituted a few years ago in the athletic community, and I think generally there was an awful lot of confusion and questions about the APR. 
Uh, I would dare say now that everyone in the athletic community, whether it be coaches, administrators, or even fans, uh, certainly understand, recognize, and appreciate uh, the purpose of the APR and the positive impact that it has had upon the athletic community. I view this product in a similar fashion. Uh, it's an evolving process, and there is much confusion and, and some misunderstanding as to what the purpose of the product is at this point. But I think as we go forward and it is clarified uh, various aspects of the product, uh, the athletic community and universities as a whole will use it uh, to benefit them and to guide them in, in their future decisions. Uh, one, one thing I think that we need to be very, very careful about, and it was even indicated on the graphs that Jim was using, and that is that the maximum does not become the minimum. And, and we've heard that phrase used so often, but I have heard athletic directors and athletic personnel say, well, you know, in this particular category, according to the dashboards, we are in the 25th percentile. Uh, we're not doing very well there. We need to find ways to increase our funding in that particular area if we are going to remain competitive. Uh, that is one of the real dangers of something like this, and, and we need to take, as athletic administrators, we need to take a very broad perspective of what this is and not just finitely determine that we are not going to be competitive, we're not going to be in the marketplace just because of this one factor. Uh, and, and, and if we can take the holistic or the broad perspective of this product, I think we will all benefit tremendously from it. Some of the areas that athletic departments have concerns about, and it sounds as though you've already discussed them somewhat today, uh, we've already mentioned that some of the areas that, of income or revenue that athletic departments generate for the university are not all included in the dashboard indicators, things such as merchandise that the university may share in that revenue, parking, concessions, those types of areas uh, that need to be indicated. And I know that Jim uh, talked about a trend line, but from an athletic standpoint, it's important for us to, to have all of that included in a factual manner, and so the trend line is something that can be trusted over the long term. Uh, and I think we're moving in that direction, and there's certainly uh, a receptive ear on the NCAA's part uh, to correct those, uh, those shortcomings or those areas that need to, to be strengthened. Uh, some of the other areas that, that uh, are uh, questioned anyway by the athletic world, uh, right now student fees, and, and uh, many different universities handle student fees differently, obviously. At Wake Forest, we don't have student fees, but we get an allocation from the university, but it's not from student fees. It's just a general allocation from the university. Uh, but that allocation is counted against the athletic department, but in return, most athletic departments issue free student tickets to the student body. That is not credited to the athletic department. So uh, there needs to be, in, in our opinion anyway, some mechanism that the athletic department can receive credit for the tickets that are issued free of charge to, to the students. In our own particular case, we did some study on the value of those seats that are allocated to our students, and we give all of our students a free ticket because of the size of the university. We're capable of doing that, but if we were to go to the marketplace with those tickets in hand to our donors and fans, 
they are extremely valuable. We don't have the opportunity to go to the marketplace because, rightfully, we give them to students. Uh, but we need, if we are going to be charged for that allocation, then we should be credited for the student uh, tickets that we are issuing, issuing uh, free of charge. Uh, it has been mentioned that tuition and fees, uh, that's a confusing area, uh, especially, <clears throat> excuse me, for a private institution. You'll notice that uh, the, the tuition and the scholarships, I should say, uh, comprise about 17% in the FBS schools. Um, at Wake Forest, is closer to 30%. And I imagine, I think some of you are from private institutions, your scholarship charge would be from 25 to 33% as well. Uh, that scholarship charge is computed differently at different institutions. Some of the questions that I have heard about scholarship charges, uh, for instance, is how do schools report their out-of-state tuition waivers? Uh, many of our institutions, when recruiting athletics uh, athletes, they waive the out-of-state portion of the tuition. How is that accommodated in this particular study? Uh, some institutions waive tuition uh, for recruited student-athletes. How is that uh, recognized in this study? So details like that are very important as we go forward. Uh, it's very important that we define them so we're all on the same foundation. We all have the same basis so we can understand this report and use it to our advantage the best uh, possible way we can. Uh, another area is chargebacks at the university. Uh, some universities charge their athletic departments uh, for everything that the athletic department uses from the general university administration. <clears throat> One of the articles that was sent to you um, highlighted an example of a president uh, devoting 20% of his or her time to the athletic department. Does that mean that 20% of the president's salary should be included in this dashboard indicator as a part of the athletic department expense. Uh, all of those should be clarified as to how we are going to use them in the dashboard indicators. Uh, one of the questions that, that a number of athletic directors has, uh, ha has verbalized, and that is the percentage of the total university budget uh, that is athletics. And I think across the board it was 5%, if I'm not mistaken. Well, does that include some of the professional programs? Does that include the business school, the law school, the medical school? We have all of those at Wake Forest. Uh, does, that does that include satellite campuses? Or does that just include the undergraduate program at those universities? That, of course, could have a major impact upon the percentage uh, uh, that is allocated or the percentage of the budget uh, that is athletics. Uh, but overall, I, I would say that the athletic community is very, very excited uh, about the future of this product. Uh, we believe that it can really enhance our decision-making process uh, as well as the university decision-making process. And, and we believe that the, the NCAA uh, and the people who are working on various committees uh, that are dealing with this product uh, are very receptive to the suggestions that are being made by the athletic world. So uh, we're excited about its future. Ron, thank you uh, very much. And we'll throw the floor open to questions. Henry. Some more of a comment. I just wanted to um, emphasize something that Professor Zimbalist said. If you look at the last decade of university endowments, again, I'm speaking for the 
for the publics, I think, here as well as the privates. With the exception of the years 2001-2, these have really been extraordinarily rising endowments. And thus, those rising endowments covered a multiple of problems that in the budgets. And I think this implosion, and there can't be any endowment anywhere that survived the last six months, because there was just nowhere to hide. University endowments are not all in cash by any means. Um, it really will focus a different kind of attention on this disjuncture that he pointed out. So I do think that um, there's going to be a great deal of internal soul searching that goes on now over the next months. And it won't be peculiar to athletics because these attempts are, these, these times are, uh, you try to cut fat out of your budgets or slack wherever they are. But it's going to, uh, I would be amazed if it doesn't hit athletics in a very profound way because that cover in the rest of the university simply is not going to be there. Excellent, excellent point. Um, while others are thinking of a question, I, I, I was curious, uh, uh, Dan or Jim, uh, when you say that intercollegiate athletics is roughly 5% of university expenditures, now, some universities have a hospital, right. which has a huge, uh, is a huge enterprise. Uh, some have big uh, auxiliary, other kinds of auxiliary uh, expenses, uh, research budgets, which are not part of the, what we call E&G, education in general. So w what is the university budget what is, in, what is included in the university budget that when you make that, that comparison? That's one question. And the second is, I think an interesting question, a number to compare would be the, uh, the, 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 between the growth in the athletic budget and what we'll call education in general expenditures. And is that part of the survey in, 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 in any way? The uh, various advisory committees looked at all of those issues, Brett. I mean, looked at should it be <coughs> reported as ENG? Should we be, excuse me, <coughs> should we exclude the professional schools or should we just use total expenditures? And where they ended up was that the clearest number of the three probably is total expenditures. So that does include medical schools. It includes all the professional schools, as well as some institutions that have large grants. And, uh, medical schools have to be on the same campus? Yes, they would have to be in the same campus. For example, an institution that I used to be associated with at Arkansas had uh, their medical campus as a separate unit. So it's not included in the Fayetteville <coughs> numbers. Federal grants and contracts. So you're including all research washing in and out. Well, I mean, everything. That change everything. Because at a big research <coughs> university, that amount of money alone is anywhere from $400 million to a billion or a billion and a half dollars a year. I think that, that's exactly right. And, and the intent was to show what portion of the total enterprise, the higher education, the institutional enterprise, does athletic make up, not a segment of it. And so that's where the presidents at the time ended up. It made probably most sense to the 
to talk about it in terms of the percent of the total enterprise. You, you know, I would, of course, different people will have different opinions yeah, on that, and so I'm just offering one person's no, no. opinion. But to me, the more relevant comparison would be with the E&G. And because you're really talking about an undergraduate intercollegiate athletics program, and what are we spending on educating uh, students? And that's sort of what the E&G cap capital captures. And I think there, that's a pretty well-defined number. I think it's a federally reported number. So there are rules by which you report uh, the E&G expenditure. So anyway, it's just one. It's a good point. And in fact, we have it on our list for a possible good. addition to the indicators. It will not be in this next year, but it'll be in the following year when we will likely add several indicators based on the feedback we receive from our member institutions. Good. Other Yes, please, Cliff. I'd like to uh, follow up on Henry's point. Um, and I think, Henry, you're quite correct that um, the current fiscal crisis is going to have a provide a potential opportunity for some um, modest, if not significant, uh, reductions in terms of some of the excesses in intercollegiate athletics. But what occurs to me is that, as is always the case in this area, uh, as I have sometimes said, uh, unilateral <laughs> disarmament doesn't work. You have to have collaborative universal kind of or multilateral disarmament. I guess it's a two-part question. First, um, if this is to take place, even in the modest circumstances, like remember we had the reduction in the number of games in baseball, remember that, we went through that. But where, first and foremost, should the initiative come from in order to achieve some of this in a multilateral fashion, as opposed to individual institutions? Should it come from a, uh, the leadership in intercollegiate athletics? Should it come from the conferences, doing a single conference? But to take advantage of the opportunity, it seems to me we cannot just rely upon individual campuses to say, well, we will do such and such in terms of reform uh, if the competitor does not do so. So I guess my question is, where, where do you see the, the leadership opportunity for taking advantage of the fiscal crisis or using the fiscal crisis in order to achieve some of the reform? I don't think it will be on a multilateral level, which, uh, and I don't think you'll get a waiver on uh, salaries uh, going for an antitrust exemption. I, I just think it's unrealistic. And I think every time, you know, we know from our own experience, even for the basketball fourth coach, every time we've got into those kinds of discussions, you, you run afoul of the antitrust litigation. So I think that's impossible on the salary end. And I think it, it raises Cliff, even a bigger issue because some universities will take, if they're, you can't eat relative, but if you're relatively well off in a fiscal crisis, we'll go poach good faculty from mm -hmm. universities from Wisconsin or Illinois, some of the state universities whose budgets are in disarray. And that'll be a balance for places that are relatively, can weather this storm. So I think whether will, people will even look at athletics like that, I don't know. I, I, I think less so than they will on the academic side. But I don't think you're going to be able to have um, consequential conversations. Because what, what would they look like if they're on the salary side, we, we come up against the antitrust. If they're on the capital expenditure side, it, it's, it's apples and oranges. So do you say to Indiana, don't finish off your boxes 
at your stadium. I, I just don't see where that conversation goes. I think it's really more a matter of leading by example. But the problem on, uh, in athletics is that where people might lead by example in, in one area, say away from athletics, and that might be pace setters at certain universities could get away with doing certain things, I think on athletics it's extremely difficult. So I am not at all confident, and I, in fact I'm extremely skeptical, that, these, that conversations, allowable conversations, are, are going to take place. Let, let me, can, can push, I let me push you a little bit on that, Andy. If, in fact, you may be correct, uh, I think you and I both know that there are several institutions which have, in the last four or five years, uh, engaged in significant investment in capital facilities, many of which are relying upon uh, external funding and bonding, in which uh, the opportunity under these current fiscal circumstances and the potential reductions in the level of revenue in the internet and the collegiate side may very well not be able to meet even the payments on some of those bonding. <clears throat> now, does that mean, according to your model, that those in some of those institutions are going to be in even additional serious fiscal crisis? Because, as you say, if the ones who are doing reasonably well have the resources can survive. Are uh, you projecting that there's likely to be another category which is really going to have a double whammy, not just the reduction in terms of the fiscal crisis, but also in terms of being able to maintain payments on some of those capital facilities? I would think so. Yeah. Can yeah. I just jump in on, yes, on please. that for just a second? Um, I, I think, in, indeed, it would be perilous for the NCAA to try to enact legislation that limited coaches' salaries if they didn't have an antitrust exemption. Yeah. Uh, 1998, Major League Baseball went to Congress and they asked for a, uh, a provision that removed the exemption, the, the purported exemption that they have back from 1922, that removed it as it relates to labor relations. As long as baseball went with one voice and they said, we want this to happen, Congress was happy to jump in and cooperate. I think if the NCAA went and explained why they wanted the exemption, there would be few Congress people who would resist. It ought to be something that could go through Congress. Secondly, I think this is something that has to happen multilaterally. Unless all of a sudden one conference says we don't care about winning anymore, we don't care about the model that we've been following for the last hundred years, um, you're not going to have it done on an individual uh, university level. You're not going to have it done at the conference level because if, you, if one conference votes to limit coaches' salaries, then teams are going to go to another conference. Indeed, one of the problems with my suggestion about a, an NCAA, NCAA rule is that you're going to have the College Football Association reappear. That is, if, you, if the NCAA tries to control everybody's salaries, then a lot of schools are going to opt out of the NCAA. I think at that point what you do is you say, fine, go ahead, spin yourselves off and be professionals. All of the blanket protections you have, such as not paying your athletes, uh, that you have within the NCAA and the amateur model that you're following, all of those are out the window. But something aggressive has to be done, and it's not going to happen on an individual school basis. I think, uh, uh, Anita, did you have a... too much, some people's thought or not, um, what were the outliers? How much more than 5% and how much below 5%? Um, we have outliers that are in the 3 or 4 and then up to the 15% range, 15, 16%. 
Is it? It seems like a decent rule to work toward for the schools to see if they can stay within that range. If there weren't a whole lot on either side, and it sounds not <coughs> the range there. Well, that's an excellent point, and bear in mind that we're talking about a pretty wide range of budget size, so 15% might be a relatively small uh, total budget. I actually think the, 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 that measure is, that makes no sense, because take the University of Michigan. It has a medical school. It has a hospital. The, that adds an enormous amount to its budget. Take the University of California, Berkeley. They don't have a hospital. They don't have a medical school. And so 5% at, at Berkeley is a completely different thing than 5% at Michigan. Do you think that's mitigated? Um, I, and I, this is a question, not a statement. I, the number that would appear on Michigan's budget, institutional budget, would, would that be just the... Um, just a supplement that's going from the university, is that, or is it the total? It's no, not the total. In, in the Michigan's school. case, they actually own the hospital. It, right. So it's part of their university budget. I, okay. Is there an offset there, I guess, is what I'm asking. I mean, that's a huge, enormous expense and, 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 and operation. It's like the difference between SMU and Wake Forest. I know whenever we are doing com comparable data, Athletics or not, and Wake Forest is in the group. We try to take out your hosp the hospital and the medical center. We try to get everything but the medical school. It's kind of hard to do. <laughs> we try to do it. Yes. You know, just on the question of what's going to happen because of the economic downturn, um, as much of the discussion last night touched on occasionally, and everything we've done for almost 20 years keeps saying, um, those who care about athletics, care passionately, and see the results immediately. In the face of the economic downturn, believe me, you're going to be a lagging indicator of that in the athletic side, precisely because nobody understands that you're gutting an academic program for about five years. They understand right away when you're not paying enough money to be competitive with somebody else in the same conference, which is what depresses me about this story is that I think we're going to get more disproportionate not rather than less in the, in the face of the downturn because you guys are going to face the same pressure from the same fanatics who will say, the hell with the downturn, Cut the, you know, stop paying those pointy-headed intellectuals, but don't you mess with my athletic budget. My Surely <laughs> not. <laughs> Surely not. He <laughs> <laughs> called and, you out, and I, uh, I, I, I guess I, I guess I must say, Hotting, that that that's evidence of one of the things that's that's missing here, uh, and it's more prevalent in the big publics than it is in the privates. I've been, I've been at both, but um, you know, we we have uh, we have ten million people in Georgia who think they own me. And to some extent, they do. Uh, and all of this fits together in a myriad of, of ways. Uh, anybody who knows me knows that I would rather put money into academics than into athletics. But uh, there are some balancing acts that one has to do in big-time major public research universities today to... Uh, uh, keep some of the funding sources uh, headed in 
the right direction. And, and I, can, I can tell you, there are, there are a lot of people in Georgia, there are a lot of legislators in Georgia that are just as happy when we have a good football team than when we don't. Uh, and so the, 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 whole, the whole set of pressures that go into these decisions, and we can, we can sit here and, uh, and be either self-serving or sort of sacrosanct about it, but the, the, fact, the fact of the matter is most of us recruit in the big six conferences especially. We recruit players from the same talent pool. We recruit coaches from the same talent pool. The competitive pressures uh, are virtually uh, the same. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm one of those right down the line. You know, I've got $80 million at the University of Georgia in round numbers in athletics on about a billion six. We're 5%. Five, five but I tell people it's at least 50% of the emotional energy. And so uh, there are, there are trade-offs that one uh, has to make. I think over, I think over time um, we do get some considerable benefit other than just the dollars that the Athletic Association directs to the uh, university in the court of public opinion. But it, I, I, I'm, I'm, I must say, because you know, most of us at this table have been a professor at some point or another in our life, that it's, it's much easier to write about this and to uh, analyze and to pontificate from a future than it is when you're sitting there dealing with a myriad of pressures that come to bear on, uh, on these decisions. And, and while it is a multiple of my salary, we probably get more complaints about what the people of Georgia pay me than about what they pay, pay Mark Richt. So uh, that gives you some idea of where the uh, public opinion, and, and you, can't, you, you can't just ignore it. Uh, we are there, particularly on the public side, to try and serve a constituency. In our case, I'm very fortunate that we get to work with a very uh, highly rated uh, student constituency. Uh, and, and that's what's happening at some of the better flagships in the country right now, and I'm grateful for that. But we also have, as a land grant and a sea grant, we have responsibility to virtually every taxpayer in the state, and the athletic programs is at least a part of that mosaic. It certainly ought not be driving the equation. But any, anyone in a position like mine who says they don't think about those things, I, I think is uh, playing games and trying to mislead people, and you're too smart for no, me to try so, to do So that. we agree. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Right. You've made my point. But, the, I mean, but you have to I mean, look, look at the progress. Look at the progress of a lot of these institutions' academic programs the last 15 years. Take ours. We've, we've been a pretty good football school for a long time. We're a heck of a lot better university today than we were 20 years ago. So there's some qualitative trend lines here as well that one has to put uh, uh, into the equation. And, and I, would, I would simply stand on the notion that uh, it's called judgment. That's what we pay our better people uh, to exercise. And... Uh, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a great uh, fan, and I think I've read uh, uh, everything that uh, Dr. Zimbalist uh, has written. I've known Dan Folks for 20 years, as uh, Jim and Ron 
for many years, but I, I can tell you from where all of them sit, it's a different perspective from where I sit. And, and you have to put those things into the equation. Other questions? Uh, I, I had uh, just one, uh, one uh, final question. You know, when I think back to what drove the reform in athletics, uh, from my perspective, it is when the NCAA started reporting graduation rates and when presidents and boards saw how abominable they were in many instances, people got serious about doing something about that, and that's when you started to see the, these academic support programs grow and leading finally to the APR, which has been, a, I think, a great success. Um, so I, I'm, I get the feeling that a lot in the NCAA, a lot of uh, presidents and, and people at the NCAA are concerned about finances and where it's going and the explosion and in, in, in costs, et, et cetera. And so I guess we need some kind of reform. What that would be, antitrust, et cetera, et cetera, is very hard to, to figure out. But it, it does, trying to make the parallel here, would it not be helpful if this data you're collecting was made a bit more public so that um, you know, it's the the airing of the graduation rate uh, had an impact. Is there any thought being given to allowing a more public uh, presentation and access to, to some, some of this data? You're asking by individual institution? No, I'm just talking about I mean, collectively, individually, well, whatever. I, the aggregate is, is available online. Uh-huh. Uh, and it's, it's public information. In but it's not aggregate. disaggregated by institution. The institutional, individual institutional data right. are, are not available um, for a couple of reasons, um, one of which is a confidentiality issue. Um, and the other is that, you know, I think aggregating the data really, <clears throat> to some extent, makes it more meaningful. I, you know, aggregating the, the data sort of wash out the outliers. Um, so I, I think to, to a very large extent the aggregated data are, are more appropriate. Uh, two or three years ago I did a study where we, we uh, reported the data by conference, which was pretty popular report, and we we're talking about doing that one again. I, we didn't learn anything that we didn't know already, but uh, but it was good to see it affirmed. I understand your point. Right. We, we, we kind of struggle with that. Yeah. We have now two more questions. Carol and then Jerry. Carol, I, I think, was first, Jerry, and then you. Just a point of clarification, having been in on some of the early conversations, and to reinforce what Mike said, uh, you know, presidents are constantly making very tough decisions between <laughs> worthy priorities. Uh, so it is a matter of, of leadership and judgment. And the the uh, dashboard is intended in part as a, a tool to better inform presidential judgments so that you can, you can do the kinds of comparisons that matter for your institution based on mission, philosophy, budget-making philosophy, and so forth, and, and be better able to decide where as an institution uh, you need to land because you've got a tool. Now, the tool needs 
more refinement, obviously, but that was part of what the President's asked for. Because no. you, can't, you can't regulate, at least in the current environment, a lot of what we would like to be able to get control over. So the idea was to provide some more tools for presidential leadership and, and judgment and management. This is obviously a very effective tool. Jerry? Yeah, you said that uh, aggregating sort of washes out the outliers. And I guess I would propose to you that it's the outliers that are driving the arms race. So hiding and disguising what's going on there um, doesn't surface uh, the extreme that, that, that's being, you know, exercised. So, I mean, I, I think you're contributing to that by, by hiding the, those data. Now, whether you can expose it or not is another question, but, but I wouldn't on principle say that, that the aggregation is better because it hides the outliers. May I point out, um, one of the discussions that the presidential task force had was how transparent, how far do we go right. with the release of data? And I think it was generally agreed, well, not generally, it was agreed that this is a new tool. And as we've talked about the APR, we needed time to refine it, to put it in a position where, again, the presidents might come back and consider uh, extending beyond where we currently are today. But I don't think that we feel like we're there yet. Okay, that's a fair point. That's a very good point, in fact. Uh, Hen Henry. I would have overwhelming confidence that even publishing disaggregated data is going to make everybody stand up and say, whoa, you. For one thing, if you look under the tab um, six of the materials that the commission sent in the briefing book, there is disaggregated data on top spending in sports recruiting. It came out of the Department of Education. I presume it came from Title IX uh, reporting. That's how that got disaggregated, where people had to report on Title IX. And you can see, and there, there are some predictable things and some I was a little surprised at when I looked at here, but I just don't think it's going to make a, a huge impact. Similarly, I, I think, uh, following Mike's comments, the one thing we do hear about all the time is coaches' salaries. How accurate they may be within a margin, I don't know, but in the paper it's always reported when one of us has signed a new deal with a basketball or football coach, that X or Y got two million or three million bucks and whatever ancillary things. And I haven't seen a huge uproar. I mean, there's some, sometimes there's some comment on it in the paper. So the, the, the point that I'm trying to make is if we think you're going to get the same kind of reaction on expense data that we got to some extent from the graduation rates, I don't think so. Yeah, I actually don't think that's going to happen. It's just a guess. Yeah. I think it would be a good idea. And, and the final point that I want to make on the data, which you yourself made, Britt, it's really important to try to clear, clean up the base on which the percentages are calculated <coughs> because these are not sensible bases. That was your point. Right. I mean, most universities use multiple budgets. We're not the old Soviet Union, but <laughs> we still have multiple budgets. So we have a budget which includes research. And it, typically research washes in and out of your budget. You get a grant, you expend a certain percent of the grant over X number of years, and it's, it's reported on an expenditure basis. But none of us you know, think that's our budget. We tend to look at an operating budget, not a budget which includes the washing in and out of research. So that's, that's a simple thing to do. The next would be to try to take account of Britt's point about whether you've got your own hospitals, you have a medical school, uh, 
you know, whether you have a business school or whatever. Um, the, there are lots of other anomalies in the data on, on expenses, some of which are also easy, I think, to clear up. If you take tuition, private universities show an expense on athletics for athletic scholarships, in which is just very different than public universities because of their tuition differentials. And now it's true that for Berkeley and, and Michigan and a lot of other universities that have a significant number or some share of out-of-state athletes that they recruit, that, that number is an out-of-state tuition, which is now deferred. That's not rocket science. One, one could calculate all those things, I think. And they ought to be calculated because they'll just give us a much better purchase on what the real expenditures look like here. Um, you know, I, I give you one example of this. When I, I've been president 15 years, and when I came in, our athletics department uh, and our budget office was doing something I thought very peculiar. They would take all the athletic scholarships and treat them as a total expense against athletics, which was unrealistic because some share of those students, if you got rid of athletic scholarships tomorrow, would have been scholarship students. So in that sense, they were disadvantaging athletics by treating as an expense all dollars accounted as athletic scholarships, which made no sense. They should apply the discount rate that we were, of all tuition dollars, given back in scholarships. If you So when we started doing that, athletics actually showed less of an expense, and there was a much, but it was a much more realistic accounting. So there are anomalies in everybody's budgets. And some of those are going to be hard to figure out unless you have good, discrete data. But others of them are not so hard to figure out. Look, budgeting could begin with this notion. If those who benefit from the expenditure can't play intercollegiate athletics, you don't get to count that against the budget. I mean, that is to say medical schools, law schools, and all the rest. If, the, if that, that, there you are. I mean, you are, you're dealing supposedly with something that has to do with intercollegiate athletics. And that the costs are all about people who can play it, right? And they can't go to law school, and they can't go to medical school, and they can't go to business school, graduate school. Well, they actually could if they were on five-year. If they were, well, of course, depending on some places, they could maybe be there seven years. But I mean, that's that's what makes this so difficult, though, Hiding, is everything that you assume is like it everywhere else, like it is where you are. Mm -hmm. Is, is not. I right. mean, there are places where graduate and professional students pay student activity fees. There are places where they don't. There are places where those same students have access to athletic facilities that are sometimes built or at least contributed to by the athletic department. There are other places that they, that they don't. The, you know, there's, there's, there's no enterprise that I know of in our society that is any more pluralistic than than higher education. And so in, <clears throat> from, from where I sit, the fact that it's difficult to put all this together in neat little categories is a strength. Uh, we, we, we have small religiously affiliated uh, liberal arts colleges. We have great public and great private universities. We have mid-sized state universities, and the list goes on and on and on and on and on. So I'm... I'm very appreciative of what Jim Ish and his staff have done. I think they do give us generally some helpful data uh, to go by. But 
I think all the analysis in the world is not going to solve a problem that's basically at its core decisions made by human beings. And and so it's it just it just seems to me that these are these are helpful tools, but I think by any measure if we're looking at something that is going to ultimately be an apples and apples comparison in this business, Britt, we're too different. And 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 from where I sit, uh, uh, thank God that we are. I'm glad I'm glad that we've got a place like uh, Northwestern University or the University of Chicago, where my daughter-in-law works. But I'm also glad that we've got a place like the University of Georgia or the University of North Carolina, whose primary purpose is to serve. Uh, a particular state. Those are very, very broad parameters in what to the public is the same business. But, but there, there are great differences under this umbrella, which to me is part of what makes the American system as strong as it is. Mike, I've served on boards of five higher education institutions, from small church schools to private, private to public. I understand all of that. But if we are in the business now of saying if you can't be moving, I mean, that you, since you can never get to a perfect analysis, for God's sake, don't make it better, no, then we're in deep trouble first. Second, if we can't rely, we educators can't rely upon ever more public education of the public as to what things actually cost you. When a public doesn't even understand that we don't pay our own way with our, you know, with big-time athletics, if we're not able to depend on education, then why are we in the education business? I mean, this is the whole point of putting this stuff in front of people, is in the hope called our great democratic system that an informed electorate will be a better one than one which is not informed. And on this case, I would say, knowing precisely what the percentages are that are going into the athletic kind of endeavor for the very peculiarly different institutions, be a damn good thing for the public education process. Well, on that uh, note, let me first, uh, Jim, thank you and the NCAA. I mean, this is an incredible undertaking, and uh, I think you've provided a lot of very good and valuable information, and as you say, it will get better as time, time goes on, But uh, and Dan, for your role in that. But let me thank our panel as well for a wonderful presentation. This was the podcast of the Knight Commission on Intercollegiate Athletics. For more information, visit www.knightcommission.org.